From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, there's a magical place in Little Washington, Virginia, where my wife, Calista, and I have been going for years. It's called the Inn at Little Washington. It's an extraordinary place to visit with both a restaurant and a beautifully designed boutique hotel. The Inn at Little Washington opened in 1978 in a former garage with a staff of three by my guest, Chef Patrick O'Connell. Patrick has a unique story. He's a self-taught chef who pioneered a refined regional American cuisine in the Virginia countryside just outside of Washington. Today, Patrick and the Inn have gone on to enjoy worldwide recognition and regular hosts, celebrities, politicians, culinary enthusiasts all come to visit with him. In 2019, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the James Beard Foundation. In November 2019, he received the National Humanities Medal from the President of the United States. He's the author of three books, The Inn at Little Washington Cookbook, A Consuming Passion, Patrick O'Connell's Refined American Cuisine, The Inn at Little Washington, and The Inn at Little Washington, A Magnificent Obsession. In 2019, the Inn of Little Washington became the first and only three-star Michelin restaurant in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. It is also the longest-tenured Forbes five-star and AAA five-diamond restaurant in the entire world. Patrick's been a great friend of Calista and me, and we love being with him. We love his food. We love the ambiance he creates, and we've learned to love him as a good friend. 
So I'm particularly delighted that this holiday season he would take some time, not only to talk about his life and career in the culinary world, but also to talk about the unique experience he offers guests at this time of year with Christmas at the Inn. Patrick, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Newt. It's a great pleasure and honor to be with you. And I look forward to answering whatever questions you come up with about life here in Little Washington. Well, let's start back at the beginning. You were born in Washington, D.C. You grew up in Clinton, Maryland, which is in Prince George's County, just southeast of Washington. What was your childhood like? Well, it was a very different era all those years ago. Clinton actually was a crossroads in tobacco country that resembled, oddly enough, Little Washington when I first came here. It had an old-fashioned general store with a wood floor, and life was simple, a kind of leave-it-to-beaver, Ozzie and Harriet existence. And my parents were not particularly well-off. They had six children, a small brick rambler with two bedrooms and one bathroom. But we made do. We were resourceful. My mother was a wonderful hostess. My grandmother, who lived in the Midwest in Wisconsin, was a fabulous homemaker and cook. But as a little boy, I always thought she had to be a magician because she was capable of making something out of nothing. She had a tiny little kitchen garden, and she'd step out from her kitchen and fill her apron with a couple of rotten apples and some strawberries and some rhubarb. And she'd come back in, and she'd make pies and delicacies for a dinner for 12 out of what had fallen on the ground in the backyard. So I thought she had a magic wand somewhere, and I wanted to learn how to use that magic wand. Only later did I realize that cooking is magic. Cooking is an art of transformation. And that's when I really got hooked on the idea of magically taking something very simple and turning it into something else that pleased people. Well, the chef part of you is clearly a magician, but what's equally amazing to me, and I think to Callista, is that there's a part of you that takes that magic and applies it to the inn itself and to the surrounding buildings, and now increasingly to that whole small community in Little Washington. And I'm curious, I'd noticed that you got your undergraduate degree in drama from Catholic University of America. To what extent do you think studying drama also affected how you present and how you shape things? Well, it probably is the one element that most distinguishes me and the inn from all other restaurants and all other chefs because I tend to factor in the entire experience. I tend to get in the mind of the guest and experience everything they're seeing and feeling as they might be. So we go beyond the plate of food. I often say that the food is a lure to kind of seduce them into the entire environment. And the idea is that it is every night a play, just like a long-running show on Broadway, but the difference is that it's improv. Every night it's different, and each guest is the star of their show. 
and so we create a real sanctuary and a refuge from reality where they can indulge in the fantasy of their lives, be anybody they want to be, be anywhere they want to be, and we will be there with them. (laughs) On occasion, I've had the great opportunity once to actually have the table in the kitchen and other times just to sort of visit. You're sort of an impresario with your own team. When you walk in that kitchen, you are exuding leadership and exuding a commitment to quality. How much of that is self-aware and deliberate, and how much of it do you think is just your personality? (laughs) Well, what I love most is that every member of the team is part of the cast. They are invited to be part of that experience, and the lineup that we have when somebody walks into the kitchen kind of illustrates that. Every one of them is part of the play, and they love that because they're not just cooking. They're not just a one-dimensional sort of component. We never want any of our staff to underestimate their own importance to the success of what we're trying to do. So I always say if they walk through the room here, they either bring it up or bring it down. There's no neutral. They're all contributors in someone's life's dream or magical moments or peak life experience. So when they see it happening, it takes a while to convince a young person that we're not just serving plates of food to people. It's far more than that. In its ultimate potential, it is a kind of a healing experience. It gives them a place to go to, to escape all of the harsher unpleasantness that seems to be all around us in the real world and kind of recapture a blissful state. And once they've seen that they can go to that spot and they can return to it in their mind again and again. So it's indelible, the experience that we try to provide. So I have actually broken it down into five stages for the staff to understand that the guest experience with us can begin 20 years before they actually arrive, if they've always dreamed of coming, if it's been on their bucket list, as they call it. And then we track each phase of their experience through five stages while they're here. And that was an inspiration that came from a book Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote, oddly enough, on death and dying, the five stages of dying. And it was a universal process that no one had ever stepped back and examined from that perspective because everybody's death adverse. No one wants to think about it. But by breaking it down, she illustrated that every person, rich or poor, young or old, when faced with that universal process, goes through distinct stages or phases. So I have them up on the wall in the kitchen to remind us all the time. The final one is evaluation, which continues for months and years after they've left the restaurant, where people ask them, what was it like? Would you do it again? Was it worth it? And if we hear on their way out, they're planning to bring their parents or dear friends or whatever, or they're planning their next visit, 
we feel that we've succeeded in that final phase of evaluation. So we approach it both psychologically and scientifically. What I was able to do over these many years is kind of fuse the disciplines of theater, psychology, and the culinary arts into one unique blend of something very different than you usually expect to find at a restaurant. I think Calista and I have been coming for about 20 years, and you've just explained part of it, because I've always thought you would be an extraordinary trainer on management, because it's not just managing, but it's leadership to get people to rise above their expectations and to get them to live better. I'm curious, because I know you had some turnover with COVID, what percent of the people you hire in the end just can't do this? Because you get out of everybody that I've ever encountered at the end, you get a remarkable level of attention and performance and positive vibration. And out of the next hundred people, what percent do you think can actually achieve that and what percent just won't quite get there? That's a fascinating question. And I should add that I'm right in the middle of writing a management book as we speak. And I kind of never really dwelt on the idea that I was a manager so much as I was a transformer. So the way I regard people is the same way I regard everything I do. How can this individual be transformed into something more than they think they are? And how can they go to the next level? So the minute one of our staff realizes that by joining our culture here and being part of this team, they will gain traits, characteristics, and skills that they can use in any arena that they enter. And it will serve them personally. It will not only make them a more skilled individual, but it will enhance any career they may choose if they decide to get out of the hospitality business. But by emphasizing their importance, I think that that's probably the key. I always say to them, I take many references from film and theater. So I say, okay, when you go to a movie, you want to be swept away. You want to be engrossed and hop into the film. But if anything prevents you from doing that, it's often a character who is annoyingly miscast or whose accent is not believable. So any actor can ruin a film. Any busboy can ruin a dining experience. Any rudeness can ruin somebody's three-night stay with us. So they realize that they make it or break it. So back to how many would not be able to do it. I never give up on anyone. <laughs> and I've had some wonderful miracles. So it really comes down to how much time do I have <laughs> to devote to helping them through their transformation. It's really therapy for them. <laughs> you know, one of the people I've watched you grow, and I've been frankly amazed by it, over the years, is Cameron, who, when we first met him, was the cheese person with Farrah the cow. And everybody listening to this has now go to the end to find out exactly what I'm referring to. 
But then Cameron grew also, and you've invested in him to go and to learn how to be the equivalent of a tea sommelier. And he does this amazing tea service. But he has a personality. I've watched him blossom as he's had children and he's grown up. He's not the person he was when I first met him probably 10 or 12 years ago. He definitely is not. (laughs) He's one of a kind still. Well, he's a perfect illustration in that we actually invite people and give them an opportunity to be who they are and draw out their inner talents and inner self. So instead of finding a person who will fit into a certain niche, I relate to it the opposite way. A person comes along who wants to be here, who is unique in some way, who I feel could be a contributor. How can we create a role that that person can inhabit that they will succeed in. By the way, I was downtown a couple of months ago and somebody came up to me and they said, you know, Patrick, I love your restaurant, but I have to confess, and I hope you won't be offended, but the only real reason we go there is for Cheese Whiz, which is Cameron's nickname for the cheese and the cow. And I said, well, that's wonderful. (laughs) I don't care why you come as long as you come. So he's become kind of a headliner. And the odd thing is that it took a while for him to find his niche. So it took a while for me to find my niche. But when you find your place in the world or your niche, you can flourish. So it's really about helping each individual find what their niche is, what their contribution can be, and how to maximize it. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. 
I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. the search for your niche after you go to college, you and Reinhard Lynch came out to little Washington and started really a catering business in a garage, if I remember correctly. An old farmhouse with a wood-burning stove and an electric frying pan. (laughs) I should add that it was the 60s. (laughs) Those things happened then. They might not ever be able to happen again. But yes, we catered out of the farmhouse. The farmhouse had no heat. It had a little spring, and the pipe to the spring would get a walnut stuck in it, and there would be no water. So we did most of our bathing in the river, (laughs) and we washed the dishes for the catering company in the river. (laughs) How did you come to pick Little Washington? I mean, if you draw a circle around Washington, D.C., there are hundreds of little places. You somehow found what has become a magic little town. Well, it goes back to finding your place in the universe. So I really believe in the theory that everyone has a unique geographical spot, a physical spot in the world, the universe, where they belong. And most people, of course, don't live that way. But the idea is that if you find that spot that feels absolutely right for you, everything will fall into place. So as soon as I came out to the country and bought this little piece of land that was really just kind of a mountain shack, I felt totally at peace. And my priorities shifted. Living in the city, I was interested in so many things I could barely walk two blocks down the street without getting distracted. I think they call it attention deficit disorder now. But then it was just a myriad of interests. 
But when I came out to the country, life became very simple. You first had to stay warm and dry. And secondly, you had to find something good to eat. <laughs> as soon as I came here, I realized that cooking is what I loved to do. And that was my passion. And that as that grew, I had to find a bigger audience. So the catering was the beginning, and then we rented for $200 a month this rather forlorn garage in the very center of Little Washington. And then it all started. The fun, it never stopped. <laughs> You're largely self-taught, but if I remember correctly, we chatted about this recently. You did spend a little bit of time with Francois Herringer when he was still downtown. I did, and he was a marvelous teacher. Well. We wanted to see what a country restaurant was like, knowing it would be very different from a downtown restaurant. And Francois and his son Jacques had just achieved, at that time, an incredible success out in Great Falls with Chez Francois. And prior to that, I had only learned from books, particularly Julia Child's books. And they were a great inspiration for me. But seeing Francois was what we call in the biz a lifer. He'd been downtown for many years, and he stayed in the kitchen until he was 91. <laughs> and that's an inspiration. His passion really, really won me over and inspired me. And I saw ingredients there that no one else was using at the time, brains and kidneys and sweetbreads and frog's legs. And for a kid living in a shack, that was really exciting. So that was better than any school. It was short-lived because our opportunity after a year to open here surfaced. We actually left Chez Francois because we got a call from John Warner, who had just married Elizabeth Taylor, and he wanted us to do a big party in Middleburg for her arrival in the social scene of Middleburg. And so... We had more or less abandoned the catering company, but I thought, for that, we'll quit our jobs and reopen. <laughs> and we did. And it was worth it. As I say, that alone gave you bragging rights. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm doubly impressed, though, because when you do open the restaurant in January of 78, in the middle of one of the worst blizzards in a decade, you immediately get a rave review from the Washington Star's food critic who says the Inn of Little Washington, quote, the best restaurant within 150 miles of Washington, D.C. How could you jumpstart at that level of elegance and quality? <laughs> we didn't have quite the volume, of course, that a downtown restaurant would have before that review, but it was truly a jumpstart. In fact, you know, the old saying is there's only two problems you can have in the restaurant business, not enough business or too much business. And we went from not enough to too much in one review. <laughs> so it was a kind of a nightmare, really, because I'm sort of reclusive in a way. And that Sunday when it came out, we opened at 4 p.m. And 11 a.m., the front porch was filled with people trying to get in. And they kind of darkened the windows like a cloud. And then some of them began throwing themselves against the side of the building. And then somebody found in the junkyard alongside the restaurant a small wooden door 
that had only a little deadbolt securing it, and they began throwing their bodies against this deadbolt. And I went out into the dining room, was horrified. I thought, they're going to burst the door down before noon. (laughs) Then they came to the back door, and we had only a little screen door, and they started hollering in the door, what time are you opening? (laughs) Have the soft-shell crabs come in yet? And I thought... What has happened to my life? (laughs) And I just started working faster and faster and faster. And I really felt as if for the next 10 years, I didn't come up for air. I just put my head down. But you did take a month off at the end of that first year and went to France to sort of check out the greatest restaurants in France. Yes, and that, of course, was the smartest thing we ever did and something I would recommend to anyone in our business or wanting to go into it is get some reference points. Find out not only who your peers are, but who you aspire to become like. So David Brinkley came to dinner one Sunday, and we had planned this trip, and he had as his guest the then editor of Food & Wine magazine. And we told him we were planning a little trip to France And he said, well, I worked there. This was Bill Rice at that time. And he said, let me write a few letters of introductions. Are you going to Paul Bocuse? Yes. Are you going to Georges Blancs? Yes. So he had a little note to each of these people, the Troigro brothers, for example. And we went to the greatest three-star Michelin restaurants in the world, particularly those in the countryside. Of course, We were driving a $150 Dodge Dart at the time, and every single meal cost more than our car, (laughs) and we spent the entire profits of the first year (laughs) dining, and we'd get up from one three-star experience and drive three hours to the next one. (laughs) And on the way to the airport, my partner at the time realized that I only had boots. (laughs) I didn't have any real shoes (laughs) because who needs real shoes in the country if you work in a kitchen? So we had to stop and get me some real shoes so I could go in these fancy restaurants. But what we were so touched by was we were received with such kindness, with such warmth, and all we had to do was say we were culinarians, and their arms were open. We could see anything we wanted. We were welcomed into the kitchen. The greater the restaurant, the less snobby and self-centered it was. And that really stuck with me. So every time I greet a very young person or somebody coming to their first Michelin three-star restaurant, I'm immediately taken back to seeing myself as pretty much a penniless startup trying to get inspiration. And it really set us on the path. We continued that every single year, and it became a measuring stick for what was going on in France, where they were versus where we were. At first, of course, it was like flying to Mars, but then every year, the gap between how far ahead they were and what we were doing would narrow, till finally, after all these years, Michelin came to America, and then Michelin bestowed the third star on the Inn at Little Washington. And it was sort of a completion of a circle. It was so miraculous and dreamlike, and still is. Well, you know, Clist and I had the great experience several times going to Talevan in Paris. 
and they adore you. I mean, I walk in, we chat about you, and they clearly are emotional in their bonding with you and with the inn. Well, it's a small circle of the world's great restaurants. And I was just over about two weeks ago to a gathering which is called La Grande Table du Monde, the great tables of the world. And there are only about 120 chefs, most of them Michelin three stars. So there's a kind of a bonding, regardless of what country you're coming from, when you reach that level. And oddly enough, we share many of the same clients. They have Americans there who will talk about us, and we have French and English people and all nationalities coming here. So it's a family, really, an international family. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part of what makes the inn unique, in addition to an extraordinary restaurant, is that you reached out and you met Joyce Evans, who's a London-based stage and set designer, and the two of you reimagined the inn. And it makes the inn not just a place to have dinner, but I would say to any of our listeners, if you have an opportunity to stay at the inn, that it is an artistic experience just like the dinner will be. It's truly remarkable what you've done to redesign the inn. Well, thank you. Joyce was a true godsend and is an actual magician. We call her our fairy godmother sometimes. We were working with a local architect here who was very well-traveled and lived in the next town, and he had gone to school at the Royal Academy. So he drew the blueprints for the initial transformation of the old garage into a grander restaurant with rooms above. And I said, in what color do you imagine all of this would be? I want it to look as if it's been here for a long, long time. And he said, well, white. And I said, white? Just white? And he said, well, if pushed, I could go to putty. And I said, I just don't think that's going to work. And he said, well, if you insist, I have a friend who's absolutely mad in London. I went to school with her. If you like, she's a real artist, and I will send her a blueprint and see if she has any thoughts. Within days, this incredible watercolor came back, imagining the front lobby and entrance of this two-story entryway far grander than any wild fantasy somebody might have been able to have. And we realized that she worked much like an architect. She didn't make rooms pretty. She reconceptualized them, and she gave them a narrative and a story. So much, much later, we found out that she'd worked with a famous architect who was a dear friend of Prince Charles in England, and he had done all the private apartments, and she had done all of his renderings, and Joyce had done the interiors for them. So she was channeling not only another era, but a kind of aristocratic sensibility that almost didn't exist at the time in America. So we really stepped into a kind of history book, and we began to connect and see what we were doing in a sort of perfect alignment. So what we were creating was the sense of a private home in the country, not a hotel, not a restaurant, but more like an embassy. So the success of each project here 
has always, if it feels as if it's always been the way it is. And that's where Joyce is truly talented in giving something an established look. We do things like we soak fabrics in tea. We lay tapestries for the summer in the backyard to age. We beat walls with wire brushes and sandblast them, all to give them the sense of age. We brought in a floor that she found that's 400 years old from a chateau in France for the living room. So we've had so much fun creating this madness, this exuberant stage set, (laughs) and it just goes on and on. She's 91 now, (laughs) and we still talk. The genius that she brought to that is comparable to what you bring to the kitchen. Well, that was her goal, Newt, and she said, I want to give you and help you achieve a set worthy of your cuisine. And I think she's been more than successful. (laughs) I often say I'm going to have to up my game if she keeps upping hers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you've managed that. One of the places where your game is, I think, pretty close to a league by itself, you have a wine cellar with more than 14,000 bottles from all around the world. That's a fairly extraordinary collection. I must say, Cliff and I have never been stumped trying to find something nice to drink there. Well, when we're fortunate enough to have had the Wine Spectator's Grand Award for about 18 years, and there are fewer than 80 restaurants in the world that have sellers that receive that award, and the credit goes completely to our sommeliers and the wine team here who are passionate about what they do. And we have, over the years, acquired other restaurants' full sellers when they have closed at auctions and that sort of thing. But when we started, our county was dry. We could serve only beer and wine. We had no spirits. And we actually had to create a referendum, put it on the ballot, and we were the only qualifying place in our county and the only one to have ever applied for a liquor by the drink license. So that was a colorful chapter, changing our entire county from dry to wet to benefit the restaurant. Prior to that, people would pull up in their cars and not get out, and we'd wondered, why aren't they coming in? They were having cocktails in Dixie cups. (laughs) (laughs) Our first wine list, with Virginia's laws at the time being so difficult, was about four or five wines. So again, watching that list evolve has been like something coming full circle. Well, I can testify personally that if people go to the end now, you will not get your drink in a Dixie cup. (laughs) 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 So let me come to the sort of piece de resistance. Tell us about Christmas at the end. Well, each season has its own character and charm. And people always say, well, when should we come? Well, (laughs) at least four times a year, I say. (laughs) But there's something about Christmas here that takes you back in time more than any other season of the year. It's partly because the town dates from the 1700s. And these charming little clapboard buildings with shingled roofs and smoke spiraling out of all the chimneys. The fragrances and the freshness of Christmas 
the simplicity and the kind of antithesis of today's commercial Christmas in a shopping mall. So you feel as if you've gotten a little time machine and gone back to the era of Dickens, and you walk around the streets, and now you get a hot chocolate if you're walking around from our new little pastry shop and bakery, and you feel you're in the 1800s, and a smile just comes to people's faces. And then they come in, and we have wonderful delicacies on the menu. You know, we have black truffles that time of year always. And we have chestnut soup and oyster stew and venison right now with huckleberries and roast pheasant with black truffles. We have wagyu beef with bone marrow custard. And we have this sense of going to grandmothers, as one guest said, if grandmother was the fifth duchess of Bedford. And as if you've gone to a wonderful, wonderful house party with friends in the country. And really as if you've gone home. So we try to convey the sense that to all of our guests that they've found a home in the country. Many come back at Christmas time year after year after year and we watch their children grow up and then we watch the next generation emerge. And it's very, very rewarding to know this generation from infancy on into becoming engaged and returning year after year for the tradition of Christmas here. It is delightful for the staff, too. We have five florists this year working on the decor. And this year, we added a giant tree in our conservatory, a 24-foot tree in a glass-enclosed winter garden where guests can sit or have tea in the afternoon or breakfast in the morning. And some go to midnight mass at the local little church. Directly across the street is the Episcopal church, and the bells are ringing, and the fragrance of smoke is everywhere in the air. And there's wood fires going in all the public rooms and now in our new patios cafe as well. So people just feel they don't know where they are. <laughs> And we say, that's good. Yeah, you create an alternative reality. That's it exactly. I couldn't have said it better. And I would say as a relatively consistent guest that for both Callista and me and for her girlfriends, because we always bring them there for her birthday, there is this magnificent sense that you sort of unwind, you know, and you just relax. And we're going to put on our show page a link directly to the website so that those who have been intrigued by this can check in and make reservations and come see for themselves that what you and I have been talking about is real and that it's remarkable. But I cannot end without asking. I'm going to put a bit in here. When your management book comes out, I would love to do a podcast of Patrick O'Connell on creating a transformational management approach that grows people. And I talked to you about this years ago, and I'm thrilled that you're doing it. And I do think it's a book that will help a lot of people do a dramatically better job of leading their teams. Thank you so much. And you've just given me the title, Newt. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we look forward to seeing you in the very near future. I wish you a wonderful Christmas. I know it's going to be a busy one. 
I wish you a happy new year, and I suspect knowing you, it will be. <laughs> and we will be down as soon as we can and come and see you again. We wish you and Callista a delicious new year, and all your listeners as well. Do come and see us. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you to my friend and guest, Chef Patrick O'Connell. You can learn more about the end of Little Washington on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts. Of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.